0: Welcome to SPLiS, a podcast from the speech, pronunciation, and listening interest section of TESOL International. SPLiS provides a space for TESOL professionals to get familiar with the latest trends about all aspects of oral skills in English language teaching.
1: Hello and welcome to the Splice Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Gordon, and today we have a very special guest who is Dr. Dustin Crowther. Dr. Dustin Crowther is an assistant professor in the Department of Second Language Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. His research agenda emphasizes the attainment of intelligible speech for additional language speakers, inclusive of speaker-speaker and listener-based variables. Specifically, he takes into account linguistic and intercultural considerations that define native, non-native, and non-native, non-native interaction. Given the increased spread of English, much of his research is informed by scholarship derived from global Englishes. As an experienced language instructor, his long-term scholarly objective is to link research to pedagogy. Dr. Crowther additionally emphasizes the promotion of methodological rigor within applied linguistics research. Dr. Crowther, Thank you for coming to the Spliss podcast.
0: Thank you, and uh, aloha to everyone listening. Thank you. And this is the topic
1: that we are going to discuss today, global Englishes, which is one of your areas of expertise. So why don't we start by you telling us about global Englishes. What is global Englishes, and why is this an important area for research and teaching at present?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So I'll start by saying that we have seen increased use of global Englishes as an umbrella term for uh, other areas of study, including world Englishes, English as an international language, uh, and English as a lingua franca, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, to some extent, familiar with. Uh, And what global Englishes is really trying to do is sort of try and bring these different views on the global use of English under a single umbrella, and look at the role of English as it is currently used in the world, uh, and particularly what it might mean for the teaching of the English language. Uh, So for those familiar world Englishes, most frequently is seen as uh, really looking at a more Catrubian approach to understanding the different varieties of English that exist in the world. Though I'll say that area of inquiry has definitely expanded beyond simply variety A, variety B, variety C, uh, English as an international language has frequently sort of focused on pedagogical implications on the global use of English. English as a lingua franca has really looked at uh, English in multilingual, multicultural contact. And what sort of occurs when you have users from different linguistic and cultural backgrounds coming into contact where English is the uh, primary language of uh, contact. I just use contact twice in the same sentences. Apologies to all those who uh, may find that a bit odd. Uh, and so with global Englishes, we've seen a big push in recent years as an umbrella term, as I mentioned. Scholars such as Heath Rose and Nicola Galloway, Ali Fouad-Selvi, Bidratin Nizan, have been really looking at the, the pedagogical implications of understanding the global role of English and what that means for uh us as teachers, what it means for our students, and how it may lead to shifts in the ways that we approach the teach the teaching of the English language. Mm-hmm.
1: And what aspects or issues are at the forefront of global Englishes in terms of research and teaching?
0: Uh, I think in terms of global Englishes, and much of what I'm interested in right now is global Englishes related to, to language teaching. And it's really trying to understand... A, how do we bring global Englishes into our classrooms, given that we have well-established approaches to language teaching, uh, whether it's teaching of English or teaching of uh, other languages? uh, What does it mean uh, to teach English as a global language? What kind of changes might we imagine we see in the classrooms? But how do we go about promoting the types of changes that we'd like to see in the classroom? For example, how do we go about raising students awareness of the you know the great variability in the use of the English language around the globe when a lot of students you know it, a lot of you know pedagogical practices for the teaching of English have been unfortunately steeped in uh, native speakerism so the idea that you know the American English as a standard British English as a standard how do we go about sort of shifting our focus on teaching of English away from these standards and to a greater understanding that English at this point, the way it's used, the fact that uh, Crystal's numbers were always around 75% of the users of English are non-native users of the language. So what we see in non-native, non-native user contact is greater creativity, greater variability in the way English is used. How do we bring that into the classroom? And so a lot of inquiry is looking at how do we work with instructors And then how do we work with students, this idea that there's a bit of a trickle down effect, right? We need to work with instructors and sort of have instructors on board with this idea of English as a global lingua franca. And thus, through instructors, we start seeing effects in the classroom. But how do we go about doing that? And that's really what we're seeing the big push as for right now.
1: I know that part of your work has investigated what speaker variables contribute to the perception of intelligibility and comprehensibility in second language speech. Um, What are the repercussions of global Englishes in English language teaching for intelligibility and comprehensibility development?
0: Sure. What's really interesting with this question, there's a couple of interesting points I'll start with, and then I can come back to the question itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wrote a, a paper with, with Peter DaCosta a few years back it was published as part of a, a special issue in the journal World Englishes where we were looking at ways in which to, to bridge inquiry into World Englishes and inquiry into second language acquisition. The fact that both these these strands had have, have generally lived in parallel to each other uh, and this idea that you know there's something about English and the extensive global use of English that we want to be keeping in mind when we think of second language acquisition in terms of how do we understand the learning of English given the variability that exists in the language uh, and so it's it's an interesting bridge to try and try and build because SLA so second language acquisition of the course is not just about the learning of the English language right it's it's the learning of any uh, additional language. So we were sort of dealing with this idea, of what does it mean to learn learn English as an additional language with all this variability that exists? Uh, and so starting there, extending to this idea of intelligibility and comprehensibility in L2 speech, there isn't as much of a divide there because uh, for years now, and uh, I'll use John Levis's 2005 paper as sort of a, a benchmark here, but we've been arguing from a more... SLA pronunciation perspective, that intelligibility should be, is that a broad intelligibility, the ability to produce understandable speech is a more uh, reasonable and potentially ideal target for the learning of pronunciation. Uh, and as part of that discussion, uh, we've often seen these terms, you know, looking at accentedness versus intelligibility and comprehensibility. But what's interesting is, from an English as an international language perspective, These same terms have been in use since the early 80s from the work of Larry E. Smith, who uh, small shout out since he was based out of the east-west center here at Hawaii for a number of years. Uh, But the way these terms we use quite often, intelligibility and comprehensibility were proposed differed a little bit. From uh, English as an international language perspective, uh, intelligibility was referring to essentially the decoding of a message at the phonological level comprehensibility to uh, really the, the literal meaning of a message. And then there's a third construct, interpretability, which was can we glean the intended message, right? So I always think of an example when I was in Japan, uh, I was teaching in Japan. I taught there for three years. It's where a lot of my interest came out of. And I remember uh, I was teaching high school and I wanted to use a PowerPoint presentation. And I asked if I could use the projector. And I was told that maybe it was difficult, which I learned later just meant no. It was a very polite way to say no. But I always look at, that. okay, I could, you know, I could decode the message. I know what the words they're using are. I got the literal meaning, which in Smith's model was comprehensibility. Maybe it is possible. Maybe it is not possible. But for a while, I missed the interpretability that it was basically saying, you can't, but we're going to be very nice about it. So... So sorry, sorry, did you have a follow-up question there? Or? No, no, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So uh, coming back to the question you're asking is trying to look at the link between uh, intelligibility, comprehensibility from the line of research that I've primarily been involved in and what's being done in global Englishes. is, is these terms have been used very differently in the two areas. And so when we look at pronunciation from a global English's perspective, we still see quite a bit of focus on Smith's model as a a guide, right? Uh, And I know John Leveson in his 2018 book talked about how Smith's views on international intelligibility really fall into this broader idea of intelligibility as has been discussed by Tracy Derwing and Murray Monroe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in terms of repercussions, going back to the question, interestingly enough, I don't know if there's necessarily repercussions because I think these two areas have really been on the same page for a number of years. We just haven't necessarily been in alignment in terms of how we're using the terminology. But the idea that the goal of uh, pronunciation learning and speaking learning more generally is those who are able to convey meaning uh, and you know strive towards mutual intelligibility. It's not about I must sound like you know, an American speaker of English, which in and of itself is problematic given the great variability in uh, accents across the US. You know, same as I have to sound like a British speaker of English. Tons of variability within uh, England and the countries around England as well. So I think we've really been on the same page. We just haven't necessarily been communicating the way that we should be, right? But the practices that both sides are promoting, I think are mutually beneficial.
1: Absolutely. Um, more specifically in terms of pronunciation, when it comes to pronunciation instruction, many teachers in foreign language contexts uh, still have a preference for inner circle models. Uh, let's say an American model or a, or a British model.
0: Yeah.
1: Is it time for teachers to look for other pronunciation models and why?
0: It's it's an interesting question because when I whenever I talk about this in my classes, my students will ask me, if we don't use American English as a model or, or British English as a model, what are we using as the sources of instruction? So it's it's I don't think that we should be striving specifically for our students to sound like an American speaker or a British speaker. Uh, from a global English's perspective, essentially what we wanna be promoting uh, is learners accepting ownership over their own pronunciation. Right. So this idea that it, it's a very fine line to walk because there are, I think, legitimate reasons why students may want to sound like speaker A or speaker B, uh, depending on, you know, potentially encountering social biases against them. And we don't want to necessarily disregard what students believe, uh, but we want to be able to, for me, is provide them with options and let them know the reasons. So. Going back to instructors, then, uh for instructors, what I would argue is there's not necessarily a need to, you know, not not subscribe to a specific model as a basis for your instructional practices, but recognizing that your goal is not for students to be, you know, to you know match that model in their pronunciation, right? You might use a model to guide, to provide, you know, stimuli in the classroom if you're doing you know, high variability phonetic training, you still need some language for students to be listening to, and you might provide them to different varieties of American English, but there's still some idea of you're still pulling in real world pronunciation. And so I think what we're aiming for here is, it's not necessarily, which is the best way to word this, recognizing for instructors that, because of the difficulties of acquiring pronunciation, Even if you have a model, an American pronunciation, British pronunciation, your students aren't necessarily going to reach that level, that level of, you know, native likeness in their speech Mm -hmm. and sort of recognizing that's not a bad thing, right? You may have a guide to help you push them in a specific direction, but, you know, just because they don't match it and they don't have the exact native likeness of these models isn't a bad thing at all, uh, as long as they're able to convey meaning. Right. And so when I talk with uh, students in my graduate level class for teaching, speaking, listening, we do pronunciation. What I often tell them is as an instructor, when you're talking with your students, you're really looking at giving them knowledge of what is possible and allowing them to make an educated choice on their pronunciation. Right. If they want to strive for, you know, something native like. okay as long as they're making that choice themselves. I don't think it's on the teacher to tell students that you shouldn't strive for a specific, to sound like a specific speaker, because they may have the reasons for doing so. But we want to be giving them sort of a choice. As an instructor, I think it's important that if we choose to push towards intelligible speech as an instructor, I think it's, it's important that we make that clear at the beginning of our courses. If we're teaching a course on pronunciation, allowing our students to understand the goal of this course is to increase the intelligibility of your speech. I, my goal is not to make you sound like a native-like speaker. You're welcome to pursue that beyond this course. But my goal is to focus on your intelligibility, right? So to be very clear with our students, what we're trying to do in the classroom. And part of the way to do that is raising teachers' awareness. So linking this back to Global English is, There's a lot of research that is working particularly with teachers and pre-service teachers and the types of activities that can raise their awareness of the variability of English usage, uh, try and work a little bit with attitudes and beliefs, and just raise their own awareness and their own ownership over the language so they can convey this to their students.
1: Mm -hmm. And closely related to this question, uh, what would be your message for teachers who want to help their students achieve intelligible and comprehensible L2 speech and who want to implement a more global English approach in their curriculum or in their classes?
0: Yeah, so I think what's interesting from the global English's perspective is, like I mentioned earlier, we're a lot of times we're on the same wavelength in, in terms of what we want to achieve. We want our learners to be more mutually intelligible. From the Global English's perspective, there's a big push in terms of the use of communication strategies, right? Uh, So within these, you know, multilingual, multicultural uh, contact episodes, right? If communication breaks down, that's okay. That's part of communication promoting the types of strategies we can use. And those strategies could be, you know, something as simple as a clarification request, confirmation check you know these the classic three c's approach but there's other strategies to convey it uh and you know breakdowns in communication can be phonological but they might be lexical they might be uh, syntactical they might be cultural they might be pragmatic there's different ways communication breaks down so for teachers who want to help their students achieve intelligible and comprehensible l2 speech uh i think it's you know choosing your if you're focusing on pronunciation, it's choosing your targets carefully, but what does it mean to choose targets carefully? We have a lot of research that has talked about you know functional load being important. So you know, to how consistently do two uh, segments differentiate between meaningful words? Uh, my own research has talked about you know comprehensibility is tied to segmental production, super segmental production. Right. It's sometimes difficult to identify, you know, what exactly to focus on in the classroom. But I think part of it is allowing students to know that, you know, communication is likely going to break down. Here are some strategies you can use when that occurs. Right. So trying to balance between it, it, the mutual intelligibility is not just pronunciation, but it can be an important reason for why there might be difficulties. But uh, in a paper I did with Peter DeCosta, we talked about this idea of conviviality. Entering into, and and for me, conviviality means entering into interaction and, you know, being ready and willing to work with my speaking partner, as opposed to I can't understand him, therefore we can't communicate, right? Mm -hmm. Working convivially means working in harmony, entering with this willingness that this may not be easy. That's okay. I'm going to work with you. You're going to work with me. And I think uh, when we look at, you know, from a global English's perspective, teaching, speaking, teaching pronunciation, it's also recognition that, you know, every person I speak to is going to likely come from a different background. You know, one day I'm, so I'm sitting here, the courses I'm teaching right now, we have students from Japan, from Korea, uh, from Vietnam, from uh, a number of different countries. Uh, and I realized that for me, I'm, you know, approaching these conversations differently because I'm, you know, adapting to different accents. And what strategies can I use to convey my meaning to them to understand what they're trying to convey to me? And it just changes. So there's this idea that for students, pronunciation helps, strong, intelligent pronunciation helps, but there's also flexibility and creativity in, in language use. And what Global English is, is really arguing is it's okay to be creative. It may not follow a specific norm at any point, but that's okay if you're conveying meaning meaningfully. Perfect.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Crowther, for sharing your expertise with us in the Spliss podcast. Uh, you can read more about these issues in a book that you edited with Peter Costa and Jeff Maloney, right? Published in 2019 by Rutledge. And the book is called Investigating World Englishes, Research Methodology and Practical Applications. and. Yeah. Your latest book, published with J.D. Brown, is called *Shaping Learners' Pronunciation: Teaching Connected Speech in North American English*, and this was recently published, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. published end of uh, September.
1: Perfect. Okay. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. And thank you, Dr. Prother, once again for joining us in this podcast. Right, yeah. Thank you
0: thank very you. much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. has been a presentation of Spliss, a podcast from the Speech, Pronunciation, and Listening Interest section of TESOL International. Please remember to subscribe to Spliss through your favorite podcast listening platform. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.